get started. Uh, I'll open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look into the Gospel of Matthew uh, this morning, we pray that we would see Christ clearly. We thank you that Matthew and the other Gospel writers recorded the things that Jesus said and did so that we can have knowledge of him. And we pray that as we study his life, his teaching, and his ministry, that you would encourage us and that you would show us clearly the heart of Christ towards those who are uh, sinful and who seek after him. Encourage us with these things, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, uh, Gospel of Matthew, we spent most of our time on Friday looking at the first two chapters and talking about how this is a very pro-Gentile book. Uh, It's written to a community of Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians have two primary struggles. Number one, Christianity at that point in history, was illegal, but Judaism was legal. So they were tempted to revert back to Judaism, to walk away from Christ and to go back uh, to the customs uh, and teachings that they had been raised on. And the Gospel of Matthew tries to present Jesus as the long-awaited, promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so throughout the book, there's going to be quotation after quotation, allusion after allusion, uh, connecting Christ to the First Testament. On top of that, um, Matthew recognizes that these Jewish Christians are having a hard time with the concept that Gentiles can come directly to God, that they can be counted part of God's people uh, just like they are, just like the Jews are. And so this book of Matthew goes to some pretty uh, incredible extents in order to connect uh, Jesus and, 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 and show him in a, uh, to be a pro-Gentile savior. Uh, we talked about this in several ways. The genealogy in chapter one has four kind of odd, odd, odd people included. Who are they? Yeah, four Gentile women in in Jesus's family tree. The only four women mentioned, and all of them happen to be non-Jewish. They're Gentiles. And then later, uh, none of the chief priests, none of the scribes, none of the Jews are there to celebrate Jesus's birth. But who recognizes that the Messiah has been born? The Magi. The Magi, probably, uh, you know, these people from more than likely Babylon, right? And then, uh, not only do they recognize uh, that the Messiah has been born, not only do they go to see this king, but did you pick up on the fact that they actually worship him? So they're not just recognizing that he's a human king, they're recognizing that he is what? God. God, Emmanuel, God with us, right? And then their three gifts make Jesus' house look and smell like what? The temple, once again, uh, you know, uh, reminding these Jewish readers that throughout the Old Testament, every time a tabernacle or temple was built, it was with supplies from Gentile nations. And here, uh, these Gentiles, you know, kind of make a mock tabernacle for Jesus, make it look and smell like the temple, and they recognize this is God in the flesh. This is the one who used to dwell in the temple as well. Um. Following on into chapter 2, there's a a theme, another theme that's going to start arising that we need to pay attention to. So open to Matthew 2, if you're not there already. 
Okay. So I mentioned, okay, this pro-Gentile thing. I also mentioned trying to show that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. Uh, he is greater and better than anything uh, in, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was constantly pointing to this guy. So don't fall away from him and go back to these old, uh, you know, customs. Um, let's see how these two themes continue throughout this gospel. So picking up in verse 13, the Magi have visited uh, Jesus. They've given him their gifts. They've worshipped him. Who did they tell before they went to see Christ? Herod. And how did Herod respond? Yeah, yeah, I want to worship this guy too, he says. Uh, how does Herod actually feel, though? Let's kill, him. Let's kill him, because I don't want competitors. So, verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Okay, flee to Egypt. Um, and why do they need to flee to Egypt? Well, uh, it says, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Not just kill, but destroy. Right? Very strong language. Where does Jesus find solace and refuge in his early life? In Egypt. Uh, can you think of many times in the Old Testament where Egypt is the good guy? Not many. Not many, but here... Well, actually, I guess you can think of one. Can you think of another time that a guy named Joseph takes his family to Egypt and they're able to, you know, escape death? Yeah, end of Genesis, right? But pretty soon that story becomes much more negative. Another pharaoh arises, forgets Joseph, and enslaves the people. And then from there, Egypt is the big baddies for a while, right? Um, So, uh, but here they're going to escape to this Gentile land, The Gentiles gave Jesus safety whenever the promised land didn't. All right, you see how that's another way that this is very pro-Gentile. So verse 14, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was fulfilled. uh, What the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So we have kind of this Joseph-Egypt story to start off the life of Jesus. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Can you think of another story in the Bible where a really wicked king starts killing babies? Pharaoh. Yeah, Pharaoh in Egypt. So... You know, we have this weird Joseph Egypt thing, and then we have a story following that about baby murder. (laughs) Yeah. I'll pause very quickly and tell you a little bit of a semi-comical story. Um, About baby murder? Yes. Okay. Um, So, I was... uh, This church, where I've been the interim pastor, uh, over... um, you know, end of November through Christmas, um, I was preaching on Matthew 1 and 2 uh, about the, the birth and early life of Jesus around the time of Christmas. 
And um, one of the texts that obviously I had to preach on was Herod killing all the babies. And so, you know, I I think that's really kind of an important time uh, to preach on it, by the way, because, you know, Christmas is the most holly jolly time of the year, right? Uh, Anybody ever had a Christmas where, like, you lost a loved one or something and it's a really hard holiday, right? Uh, A lot of times it's not holly jolly. The first Christmas was not always holly jolly, and that's okay um, for, for you to sometimes feel that way. Well, I'm preaching on this text where Herod is, is massacring these innocent children. And obviously, that's a very serious text. As I'm preaching on it, there's a certain weightiness that I feel in the room among the congregation. You know, it's a, it's a hard text to consider. And I'm in the middle of making a point, very serious point, in this sermon. And Mackenzie reaches over, and Simon had been in the floor, and she picks this kid up, and the second that she takes him, she's in her pew, the second she takes him from here to here, this dude blows his diaper out. (laughs) So you hear, like, this poop fart, and it's like... And people on the other side of the sanctuary are looking at him. And, like, on the recording... I went back and listened to the recording from my lapel mic. I can hear the kid blow out his diaper. And so here I am in the middle of this like really important text, really weighty point, And this kid, I mean, obliterates his diaper. And Mackenzie is sitting there and she's trying so hard not to laugh. Um, you guys remember uh, uh, Chloe's aunt and uncle Jack and Karen? They're sitting there. And they're trying really hard not to laugh. My mom is sitting there, and she's trying. And I couldn't look at that entire side of the congregation. I turned in my pulpit like this the rest of the sermon. Because if I made eye contact with one of them, I would lose it. And, and like, you know, a lot of times I would feel okay doing that. You know, middle of the sermon, I think it's okay sometimes to use jokes and laugh. But that text, I don't know about that, right? So, um, anyways, it was an awkward situation. But it's really funny to look back on it. So... Um, Herod in, in verses 16 through 18 kills babies. Okay. Um, verse 19, Herod dies and then Joseph is able to bring Jesus and Mary and all of them back into, uh, they, they don't settle in Bethlehem. They settle where? In Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee. If you look at Isaiah 9, Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, and it's a place during this point of New Testament history where there are Jewish communities like Nazareth, but there's also a very heavy Gentile presence. So right off the bat in this gospel, Jesus is growing up first in Egypt among a bunch of Gentiles, And then he comes back to the promised land, but he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He doesn't live in Bethlehem. He lives in Galilee among the Gentiles. You see how Matthew is really making this point over and over and over again, right? Are you seeing that? Right? Very pro-Gentile gospel. The church has to be pro-Gentile, Matthew says, because Christ is pro-Gentile. All right, so he comes back. And then in chapter 3, what is... Uh, what is chapter 3 about? Just looking kind of at the headings of your Bible. What is chapter 3 about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And then who is the most important person John is going to baptize? Jesus. 
Jesus. So we have this Joseph Egypt thing, baby murder, and then um, Jesus will be baptized, which um, we're going to have to spend like an entire day on what that even means tomorrow. Because John's baptism is a baptism of what? If you look at a verse... Verse 6 of chapter 3. Why are people baptized? To clean Confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. sins. Hmm. And then Jesus gets baptized. Why is that weird? He doesn't have... Probably a lot more than just that paragraph that we can get out of that, right? But but yeah, okay. Um, In fact, whenever Jesus comes to John and says, baptize me, what does John say in response? You should be baptizing me. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do this. And Jesus says, we have to, to fulfill all righteousness. So there's a baptism. Right after Jesus' baptism, chapter 4, verse 1, what happens next? Into the wilderness to be uh, so tempted in the wilderness. Okay. And then in chapter 5, so chapter 4, tempted in the wilderness, Jesus then starts ministering to people. Chapter 5, where does Jesus go in chapter 5, verse 1? Up on a mountain, and he sits down, and then he starts doing what? He gives a sermon, and the sermon is, I'll go ahead and tell you, largely, well, actually, I've already kind of talked about the Sermon on the Mount. It's largely about what? You said it was one verse. Okay, it's, it's about, um, yeah, there's the thesis verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Sermon on the Mount is all about God's law. So the very next thing he does after being tempted in the wilderness is he preaches the law of God on a mountain. Oh, I see where this is going. Matthew is casting the story of Jesus in light of what other story? Moses. Moses. Alright? Israel was taken by Joseph into the land of Egypt. And that saved them. For a while, but very quickly after that, a new pharaoh comes to power and starts oppressing and enslaving the people of God. In fact, as that's happening, Israel is still multiplying. They're still being fruitful to the point that Pharaoh gets intimidated by them. So what does he do? He starts killing. How? By throwing the babies into the river. Yeah. And then making them work more of the slaves that they already have. Yeah, he, he kills the babies by throwing them into the reeds of the river and drowning them, right? Um, but God raises up one person who finds safety in Egypt. Who is it? Moses. Moses, uh, his mother and his sister contrived to save his life. He's put in a basket. He's shipped down the river. And lo and behold, just randomly, as coincidence would have it, who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up where? In Pharaoh's palace. Royalty. This Hebrew is saved and finds solace and refuge even in the midst of Egypt. And then God 
um, is going to work through Moses. The signs and wonders of Moses occur. Uh, Moses leads the Exodus. And the chief part of the Exodus, the most important part after the ten plagues, is they come to what? Not Sinai yet. Before they leave Egypt. The Red Sea. And Moses lifts his staff and the sea is parted. And Israel walks through. And somebody open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at the first four verses and tell me what the Red Sea event is called by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 10. Not Chronicles. New Testament. Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4. What does Paul call the Red Sea crossing? All were baptized into Moses. All were what into Moses? The Red Sea is a baptism. So, you see how this is tracking so far? We see that pretty clearly. We see that pretty clearly. The very next thing that happens in the story of Jesus is he's baptized, just like Moses passed through the Red Sea and was baptized. After they're baptized, where do they go? Into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. And what do they do over and over and over again in the wilderness? Complain. They complain. And they sin. And um, the very first complaint that they have is about food. Uh, God's not giving us water. God's not giving us food. So God winds up giving them manna and quail and water. But they, they sin. They grumble and complain about food. And, and then a little bit later on uh, in Exodus 17, uh, they put the Lord God to the test. They say, is God really among us or not? And they put God to the test, according to Exodus 17, the first seven verses. And then they get to Sinai, and they build a golden calf, and they worship it. They, they worship wrongly. Israel's tempted with food and testing God and worship in the wilderness, and they fell, fell, fell under Moses. Uh, what are the three things that Jesus is tempted with? Turn these uh, rocks into? So food. Go up to the toppest point in Jerusalem and jump and see if God really loves you and will protect you. That's what? Putting God to the test. Jesus says, thou shalt not put the Lord God to, to the test. And then the third thing that Satan commands him is to do what? Bow down and worship. Worshiping. Right? So we see this one here. Jesus, like Israel, under Moses, is tempted in the wilderness. And then finally, in chapter 5, Jesus goes on top of a mountain. He sits down and he preaches the law of God. And that should remind us of what part of the Moses story? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, Moses receiving the law and then passing it on to the people at Mount Sinai. Sinai. Do we, what mountain actually is the Sermon on the Mount? We don't know. Don't know. Um, some people uh, have speculated which one it is, and you could get on Google later and look that up. Uh, it's definitely not on Sinai. It, it's somewhere, um, it looks like to me that it's in Galilee, um, but uh, not positive about that. So, that's right outside of Jerusalem. This wouldn't be the Mount of Olives either. Um, in chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis. Decapolis literally means the ten cities. And by the way, everyone who lives there is a Gentile. We'll find that out a little bit later. 
and people followed him from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Uh, what is the Jordan? Yeah, it's the eastern border of Israel. So people following Jesus from beyond the Jordan would be? Definitely Gentiles. So the crowds that follow Jesus during his earthly ministry, his first followers, aren't just Jewish. They're also? So, Matthew says, community of Jewish Christians, you should not be surprised that the church is both Jewish and Gentile. And let's think about that for a minute. Like, all right, we don't really have a Jew-Gentile issue in our church today. So what would be like an equivalent to that? Different denominations. Okay, maybe, maybe something with denominations. Think about it this way, right? Um, the Jew-Gentile problem is the Jews think we are especially holy, we are especially better. Those Gentiles really need to get their act together if they want to come be a part of our church. Do the Jews show much hospitality in their churches? Are the doors open to big sinners? No. Right? The, they're, they're closed off. They, they're, they're not an outreach group, right? They're a let's stay kind of cloistered right here. They, they kind of sound like who? We talked about the different groups of Jews in the 400 silent years. They, they still kind of sound like which group? The one that wants to break away and you know, just be uh, me and, and, and uh, yeah, they sound like the Pharisees, right? And that's not the picture of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is a place where the Apostle Paul says in Romans fifteen seven, welcome each other as the Lord Jesus has welcomed you, right? It's a place where we show hospitality and openness to one another. It's a place where the doors are open for any who would come in and have Christ. And so, what would be equivalents of this? Well, one equivalent would be, uh, you know, if you think about, okay, someone uh, homeless, poor, maybe smells a little bit like alcohol comes in off the street and sits down in the church pew near you. Are you going to say, man, I really wish that guy would get out of here? Or are you going to, you know, extend fellowship, friendship to this person? Invite them in so that they can hear about Christ. You know, another thing that it maybe would be is there are some churches that really pride themselves on, on, on being made up of people who are well-educated and well-off. Is that the picture of the New Testament church? It's all the well-educated, well-off people gathering together and having fun on a Sunday morning? The majority of Christians early on are poor, right? But if we start letting class, you know, kind of influence that, whether it's anti-poor or anti-rich or whatever, all right, we're, we're back into this Jew-Gentile type problem. Uh, is racism still a problem in, in, in churches today to an extent? Yeah, there's, maybe not every church, hopefully not your church, but it is to an extent in certain places, right? What does the Jew-Gentile problem say about that? Should it be? No. Uh, picture in Revelation 7 is the people from all different nations, languages, and tribes gather together around the throne to worship together. Multi-ethnic, right? So it's, you know, this problem would translate to us as this. We don't just worship with those that look like us, think like us, speak like us, dress like us. We worship with those that the Lord Jesus welcomes. We're called to welcome those that Christ welcomes. So, 
Uh, we see here that the Jew-Gentile problem is being addressed quite often. We also see that this is happening where Jesus is being presented as kind of a new Moses. The Moses story in Matthew is being repeated in these early chapters. Um, what is the next story right after the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7. What is the very next story? Nope. Cleanses a leper. Um, all right. The story of Matthew has been following the story of Moses. So what question do you have now? You're on the right track. What, what question should we be asking? Did Moses ever what? Yeah, did Moses ever have any sort of an interaction with a leper? You know, does the, does the Jesus-Moses story end here? Or is there another level to it? Is there another part to it? Um, well, Sophia's right. There is a time when Moses interacts with a leper. Yep. Could that also go back to when you put his hand in the bosom and it had leprosy and then put it in again and it was clean? That would break the chronology is the only thing. All of these events have been in perfect order so far. That would break the chronology. But there is a part after they leave Mount Sinai where Moses interacts with a leper. So this would be the next part of the story for us. Numbers 12. They left Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. They've gone a little bit farther towards Canaan. And Moses is going to interact with a leper. You guys ready? This is, this is a... I like this story a lot for several different reasons. I won't get into most of the reasons why I really like this story right now. Um, but this is, this is a very, very good story. All right. Numbers 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron. By the way, Miriam is the exact same name in the Old Testament as Mary in the New Testament. So Jesus' mother is, you could call her what? Miriam, all right? Miriam and Aaron, that's Moses' brother and sister, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. All right. Thanks for that extra detail, author of Numbers. I wouldn't have picked up on that, though. Um, Two things really quickly. When can an Israelite marry someone from a different nation? Yeah, if they repent and become a believer and worshiper of the one true God. Does Moses strike you as a generally holy person? So what would you probably assume this woman has done? Yeah, she probably has become a believer and Moses has then married her. All right. Doesn't really come out and tell you that one way or the other, but probably is the case. Um, Miriam and Aaron, though, are upset about this marriage. And it doesn't say that they spoke to Moses. It says that they spoke. Yeah. What does that mean? It, It probably means that they went to the other Israelites and said, can you believe Moses did that behind his back? 
Okay? Should they have done that? Who should they have spoken to if they had an issue? Should have spoken to Moses. Verse 2, here's what they said. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Aaron at times, he's a priest, but at times he does take the role of a prophet. Miriam was a prophetess. Exodus 15. So God had spoken through them, maybe not as frequently as he had spoken through Moses, but he had spoken through them. Yeah, and uh, it says in verse 2, and the Lord heard it. So here they are grumbling and complaining about Moses to the other Israelites, and it says the Lord heard it. And that is the moment, friends, when you should think, uh-oh for Miriam and Aaron, right? <laughs> verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Um, let's say that Moses did make a mistake in marrying this woman. He's a humble guy. If Miriam and Aaron came to him and confronted him, do you think he would listen to their instruction? If he's a humble person? Probably. Probably. This adds a whole new level to their sin in a way, right? He would have been receptive to it, but instead they grumble against him instead of talking to him. Verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So who does he call out here? Miriam and Aaron. Verse 10, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was like snow. So who gets leprosy? Miriam. And who doesn't? Does that strike anybody as odd? So here's why. Um, Back in verse 1, when it said Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, um, you guys who have taken like Spanish or other foreign languages, you know that most of the time, if you do something plural, and it's men and women together, is the plural masculine or feminine most of the time? masculine right usually like if i were to talk um about like this entire group all right it's made up of guys and gals i would typically use the masculine plural right uh that is how it works in spanish right yeah all right so hebrew is the same way most of the time if you talk about a mixed group you use the masculine rather than the feminine what's really weird about that is in verse one miriam and aaron speak against moses but the word speak against is feminine What does that maybe imply? Maybe Miriam did the talking and Aaron stood behind her and went. (laughs) Maybe both of them spoke against Moses, but who primarily did it? Miriam. Miriam. Okay. So who is the one who is primarily punished? Miriam. Miriam. So Miriam in verse 10 becomes leprous and then Aaron turns towards Miriam and behold, 
she was leprous. Verse 11, and Aaron said to Moses, oh my Lord, do not punish us because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Aaron sees Miriam is leprous. He turns to Moses, and basically, what does he ask Moses to do? He, he makes this statement, but what does he want Moses to do? Cure her. Cure her. Heal her. Verse 13, Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. Question, can Moses do it? Moses has done very many miracles, hasn't he? He's done uh, all the signs and wonders in Egypt. He split the Red Sea through the wilderness. God is constantly performing miracles through Moses to give them water, to defeat the Amalekites. Over and over again, Moses is doing miracles. Miriam is leprous. Aaron says, heal her. And what does Moses do? Does he reach out and touch her and heal her? What does he have to do? He has to beg God, because does Moses have any power whatsoever to take care of of lepers? No. So, so far in Matthew, the story of Jesus has been tracking with the story of Moses. Until we get to this moment. Because after Jesus goes on the mountain and preaches God's law... In chapter 8, he comes down from the mountain and great crowds are still following him. And a leper comes to him and kneels down before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And guess what Jesus does? He stretches out his hand and what does he do? He touches him and says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves. So Matthew wants you to know Jesus is a lot like Moses. He's a prophet like Moses. He's a leader of God's people like Moses. But who's greater? Jesus is. Leprosy is a picture of uncleanness in the Old Testament. A leper is the most unclean of all the unclean people. A leper has an issue that will kill him or her if it doesn't get solved. But in the ancient world, guess how many cures there are for leprosy? One. And it's a miracle. Right? No, there's none. Right? I I was trying to be funny, but that kind of came across as rude, probably. Right? The only one is that God miraculously somehow heals this person. Okay? So, a leper is someone who can't go into the temple because he's unclean. So, he's separated from the presence of God. He's someone who can't be around the community of God's people because he's unclean, so he's separated from the people of God. A leper is somebody who has a disease inside of them that will lead to death if God does not intervene. And a leper is someone who can do nothing at all to fix their problem or heal themselves. So leprosy in scripture becomes a picture of our sin condition. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from the people of God. Sin is something that we can't take care of on our own. It's something that we can't heal ourselves of. And the wages of sin is death. And when a leper came to the lawgiver Moses, Moses couldn't do anything. Moses' message in the law was do this and live. Don't do this and live. So whenever a sinner, whenever a leper came to Moses, 
did Moses have good news to offer? Could Moses give them life? Could Moses give them healing? No. But when this leper comes to Jesus, Jesus can reach out his hand and touch this person and heal them. He has good news to give to unclean sinners. If they come to him, they can be purified, they can be cleansed, they can have life, they can have salvation. So this text is, these first eight chapters of Matthew are trying to point you to the fact that Moses and Jesus are alike in a lot of ways. He's a new Moses, did the same things that Moses did with mighty works and teaching and miracles. There's consistency between the two of the two of them. But he far surpasses Moses in that he can offer cleansing and forgiveness and salvation to those who are unclean and have fallen into sin. And on top of that, in the story of Miriam getting leprosy, who can heal Miriam? God can. Moses says, Lord, please heal her, please. And God says, I will, but not for eight days. And then finally, at the end of the eight days, God heals Miriam. Okay. Does Jesus pray in the healing of the leper? Does he say, God, please heal this leper? And then the leper is healed. He just touches. In the story of Moses and Miriam, who is the only person that can heal a leper? In the story of Jesus, who can heal a leper? Jesus. Who does Matthew want you to know Jesus is God. God. You see how that argument is made, right? Um, Here's something to kind of keep in the back of your mind. When we get to the Gospel of John, we're going to get several explicit statements where Jesus is going to claim to be God. He's going to say things like, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am is a very important phrase in the Old Testament. It's the name that God gives Moses at the burning bush. And Jesus takes that name for himself seven times in the Gospel of John. Eight if you count the one I just mentioned. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. I existed before Abraham existed. I am God. He'll say things like, I and the Father am one. He'll say, uh, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's a statement Jesus makes to the disciples. The Gospel of John is going to go out of its way to present the idea that Jesus is God right in your face, very explicitly. The Synoptic Gospels don't. Those statements that I just made don't show up in the Synoptic Gospels. In the Gospel of John, we learn about Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God, through the things that he teaches and says. I would argue that in the Synoptic Gospels... Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God, is presented, but it's not through the things he explicitly says with his words. I think it's presented through what he does. Over and over again in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does things that in the Old Testament only God can do. And what does that imply about Jesus? He is God. That he is God. There's a verse in Job, we'll get to this whenever we get to Matthew 14, there's a verse in Job that says only God can walk on water. Well, here comes Jesus prancing on the lake, right? You know. Uh, now, who else walks on water briefly? Peter. Peter. Why? How? Because he was holding Jesus' hand while doing it. Yeah. Well, 
uh, you know, Jesus, yeah, eventually he is, right? <laughs> Jesus reaches down and gets him. And Jesus is, is, is working a miracle, allowing him to do it. But Jesus, in and of himself, in his own power, can do that in the story. In the middle of a what, by the way? Storm. Storm, Storm right? The winds and the waves scare Peter half to death. He was scaring them on the boat, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. So this is an important point to recognize that, that in the Synoptic Gospels, the divinity of Jesus is present, but it's more through what he does than what he says. Okay. So any questions on this? Do you see these parallels between Jesus and Moses? And it breaks at this leper story in a very significant way. All right. Um, Tomorrow, very, very briefly, we will probably touch on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the healing of the leper together. We've already kind of talked through that a little bit, but very briefly, we'll kind of recap how those two stories fit together. And then tomorrow, um, we're going to do something where we use all the synoptic gospels, and we're going to look at different perspectives on Jesus's baptism. And what I mean by that is we're going to be asking the question, why was Jesus baptized and why is it important? But we're going to look at it from several different angles. And what we're going to see, hopefully, as we do that study, um, is that there are different themes present in that story. And and there are different layers of meaning. You know, um, last year as we went through Old Testament, we talked a little bit about the fact that there are layers of meaning in the Old Testament stories. You know, one layer of meaning would be uh, this is what actually happened to Israel in the wilderness. Another layer of meaning would be uh, here is how that points forward to Jesus. Another layer of meaning might be here is how that connects to Israel in exile or something like that. What we're going to do whenever we look at his baptism is we're going to look at it from several different angles. What Old Testament stories are maybe playing a role in this? Uh, What are the different meanings that the synoptic gospels are trying to pull out of it? And we're going to see there's a a lot to cover, more than a paragraph to cover, right? Uh, So um, we're going to see that it's tied in with the fact that Jesus is our priest. We're going to see that it's tied in with the idea that Jesus is going to take our place as a substitute on the cross. We're going to see that it ties in with the fact that um, one of Jesus's roles as our priest is to pray for us and even to help us in this confession of sin business. Did Jesus have sin to confess of? Not sin of his own, right? But uh, what is placed on him at the cross? Everyone's sin. Our sin. One of the analogies used for Christ is that he is the head and we are the what? The body. And so Christ comes alongside us and can help us confess of sin uh, because of how tightly united to us he is. And so there's several different things that we want to explore. Probably look a little bit at the story of Naaman the Syrian uh, and how maybe that ties into all of this. Uh, Lots of things that we're going to try to pull out of it. Tonight, even though we're just getting into uh, going through Matthew in our lectures, uh, I want you tonight to read Mark 1 and 2. And you're reading, you're going to start reading the Gospel of Mark. So you're going to read Mark 1 and 2. Your memory verse this week is Matthew eleven twenty nine, which will be due first thing on Friday. So make sure that you don't wait until the last minute on that. 
Uh, remember that memory verses uh, will show back up on test, so you need to work to keep all of them fresh. All right. Any questions for me? All right. Head on.